Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. Before we get going on today's episode, we do have an important request, and that is to please go to christianitytoday.com slash podcast survey for, guess what, a podcast survey. It is not a fake survey. It's not one of these like, hey, it's actually you know an evangelistic survey or a, you know advertising thing. It is legit. Help us do a better podcast. Help us understand who you are better. Help us make this podcast better. It should only take you three minutes. If you want to, at the end, you can put in your information. There'll be a drawing to win one of five Starbucks gift cards. There's a subscription offer at the end. This is not a trick to, you know, add you to some stupid newsletter or anything like that. Stupid newsletter. I love our newsletters. But this is not a trick to get you onto one of those newsletters. This is, we want to make the show better. A non-consensual newsletter. Yeah, really yeah not one of those. Have you ever seen those, Morgan, where you get the thing and you, you unsubscribe? And like the first option is, I never ask for this newsletter. What is the deal with that? There's so many people who are putting us on newsletters that we don't want. That's not what this is. It's christianitytoday.com slash podcast survey. Easy to remember, even easier to take the survey. So please do it. And it's just a reminder, like, if you want to support the show, this is one of the ways to do it. Because I would imagine, obviously, since we have amazing listeners, most of them have already rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts and or they've sent us an email with their feedback. This is just kind of if you actually want to support the show and you don't necessarily want to pay for your subscription since we're giving a six-month subscription away. That person listening right now is like, oh, I meant to send them an an email. I meant to send them an email about that in one episode. I see that hand. I see that hand, and you come forward, give us a survey for the show. We need you. All right. The website, again, is christianitytoday.com slash podcast survey. We'll obviously put a link to that in our show notes. And you have suffered with us long enough, so here is the show. The Navajo Nation continues to be hit hard by COVID-19. The community has reported nearly 7,000 cases and more than 330 deaths. Leaders have ordered businesses closed on weekends and a community which is spread across Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. The Navajo Nation's pre-existing conditions like poverty, limited running water, and close living situations make it extra vulnerable to coronavirus. I'm going to read a quote right now. Because of the economic disparity amongst the Navajo, there are higher rates of health conditions that are often paired with economic injustices in vulnerable populations, diabetes, heart disease, and cancers. A lot of different diseases and health conditions that make the Navajo people more at risk for catching the virus, but also having a higher mortality rate because of the virus. So the National Director of World Renew, Carol Bremer Bennett, in a recent interview with CT. Even as the rest of the U.S. is trying to mentally move past COVID-19, wanted to spend some time learning more about a community deeply affected by it. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm editorial director at All right, Ted, your turn to give a gut check. 
I've had my eyes on Navajo Nation, you know, as this COVID thing has increased because obviously it's one of the earliest hard hit areas. I'm also grew up in Arizona before I moved out to Hawaii. Have spent a lot of time in Northern Arizona. It's been hard to, hard to see some of these stories coming out. I read the Navajo newspaper, great interview that I read with this reporter who's has to do a lot of her, her own reporting. And, and in some cases, some, it's tricky reporting when there's a, an, an epidemic and, and when there's not necessarily a lot of ability for social distancing and hand washing and all that kind of thing when she's on the road. Yeah, just re- realizing that we are not all experiencing COVID-19 in the same way. So I've, I've been curious about, from a CT perspective, like what's the CT story here? And so I've been looking for us to have different ways at, at looking at that. We, we did do a piece earlier this month, though, it was an interview grateful to see that but there's a lot of there's a lot of stories to tell how about you morgan yeah actually i was really excited that we did run that interview i didn't mention when i was reading this quote from carol she is actually navajo herself and it was interesting to hear her remarks and thoughts about the whole thing i think one of the things that's just been kind of the biggest punch in the gut with so many of these covid-19 stories is just reading about how some of the most beautiful parts of communities has actually been the thing that's made them more vulnerable and so One of the things that Carol mentions, if you read the interview overall, which of course we will put in our show notes, is just the fact that many communities live in multi-generational households. This is something that I think is great for many reasons and also is making a lot of folks far more susceptible to catching coronavirus. There's many things that I'm sure we'll get into today, but that is one of those things that just feels really discouraging when you read about that. The other thing I will just say is I am really looking forward to hearing about the role of Christianity, how that affects what happens in the Navajo Nation. This is something I think, Ted, that you've actually educated me a little bit on is about just how many Christians live here. And so I am looking forward to learning more about that with our guest, which is who is whom? You want to tell us, Ted? Yes, our guest is Donnie Begay and his wife, Renee, and he are co-directors of what is known as the Nations Movement. It's a campus ministry that's part of CREW. They live in Albuquerque with their daughters, and he is pursuing a PhD under NATES, which, if you're not familiar, is a really great program, Indigenous Studies, Indigenous Theological Studies. And that's connected to the University of Divinity in Melbourne. So, Donnie, uh, thank you for coming on to Quick to Listen. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I remember I, I've heard about Nations Movement for a while during my work here at Christianity. How long has Nations Movement been been going on for more than a decade? I know that. Yes, my wife and I started Nations down at New Mexico State University when we were college students. We worked alongside and under Ministry of Crew, but also another ministry on the crew called Destino, which reaches out to the Hispanic community. And from that, we thought this would it's a great time to be able to build something for Native people by Native people. Donnie, we did go into some of the general overview of what the COVID situation is right now in the Navajo Nation, but I am wondering if you can give us a deeper and maybe more robust sense of what the situation is right now. Yeah, just to give a quick update again, as of June 23rd, 2020, there were over 6,990 positive cases of COVID-19 on the Navajo Reservation. Thankfully, over 3,000 have recovered already. Fortunately, there are still 335 confirmed deaths. So due to the recent spikes in cases when things are starting to open up in the state, the Navajo Nation president, Jonathan Nez, had to issue another set of 57-hour lockdowns over the weekend. That's where you can't, no one on the reservation can leave or even drive around to go visit family or to go into town to buy groceries. They had a two-week break from these lockdowns after eight, three weeks of lockdowns before that on the reservation. 
preparing for this episode, I knew I wanted to reach out to friends who live on the reservation. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, so I'm not. I'm about two hours from my reservation, so I wanted to make sure I had their voice also to update people on what's going on on the reservation. So one of the friends I reached out to, his name is Pastor Jerome Sandoval. He's a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church there in Nosh Chidi, located about 45 miles north of Gallup. He had this to say, he said, during the 57-hour lockdowns, the people become very isolated, and not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And he was reminiscing about when the lockdowns were first lifted a few weeks ago. People like him, they just felt this weight lifted off of them, I guess, kind of probably from freedom to be able to go about. But when Pastor Jerome, he usually goes around and visits family in his community just to see how they're doing and to check on them and make sure they have the necessities and food during the pandemic. But when he comes to see people, main thing they want to do is talk kind of which reveals some of the isolation that they're experiencing there. And so these lockdowns and curfews are can be very cumbersome, especially for people who have to drive an hour or more just to get off the reservation to buy groceries or necessities. And at one point, the Gallup mayor enacted the Riot Control Act, which is a state law, to keep people who don't live in Gallup from even entering the city. Caused a bit of a stir for the people who didn't live there who need to go to Gallup, like border towns, to be able to buy certain things. And so a good friend of mine, Mark Charles, wrote on his blog on wirelesshogan.com. He wrote, Every weekend, tens of thousands of people from both the Navajo and Zuni travel to Gallup to purchase groceries, to do laundry, haul water, among other essentials, on the first weekend of every month because so many people on the reservation live on fixed incomes. Travel into Gallup is even more critical as funds grow short and food supplies are low. And with almost no notice, the mayor of Gallup and the governor of New Mexico closed access to a critical border town that provides essential services, medical care, and resources to a large portion of the Navajo Nation and Zuni Pueblo. So there was quite a few people affected by that. Yeah, when the when they actually closed the border town. That's really that's really remarkable. How, how does that distance play play a role? I understand that you know part of it is that there's only a few groceries outside some of those big towns for people to get to, and so there will be some congregation there. How does that how does that play into the, some of the COVID issues? On the Navajo Nation, there are only about, about a dozen food grocery stores that cover 27,000 square miles. That is a Navajo reservation. So border towns are very essential for not just food, but I mean, for washing clothes and being able to you know, purchase new cars or to purchase things that people need to be able to live. And most people on the reservation live at least maybe at least an hour from one of these border towns that offer these necessities. So you mentioned this a little bit, Donnie, but I'm, I'm curious if you can tell us more about the role that churches and Christian organizations have played with regards to responding to COVID-19. I also reached out to another friend who was my high school cross-country coach a long time ago, Elmer Yazi. He lives in uh, Rehoboth, New Mexico, which is about a mile outside of Gallup. But he said for the past 10 to 12 weeks, on every Tuesday, he'll take food to local communities, well, on the reservation in Sanosti and Nashchiti. Elmer's worked with different organizations, but recently he's seen the Navajo Nation Christian Response Team drive to every part of the reservation. You know, again, it's 27,000 square miles, so they drove on the back roads and the hard-to-get-to places to be able to deliver food and supplies supplies either to the chapter houses or to the churches where they tend to be funneled into the community, which can be difficult too because, you know, on the Navajo Nation, there's a huge lack of infrastructure. So a lot of people don't know if they're not connected to the church, they're less likely to be able to know that there's resources and foods and supplies available to them. Tell us a little bit about, about the church. Can you give us a little bit of the lay of the land of like what I've heard pretty wide ranging numbers in terms of what percentage of Navajo are Christian? You know, what kinds of Christian they may, may be? I've, I've heard that, you know, Pentecostalism is growing quickly. I've heard, I guess maybe we should start with 
one understanding that about half of Navajo live in the Navajo Nation within the, the reservation. Is that about right? I haven't read or kept up on the current numbers, but I'm I'm tempted to say it's even less than half that actually live on the reservation. Like, I mean, I'm one of the one of the other percentage that moved off the reservation and live and work off the reservation. So there's quite a few of us here in in, in the community of Albuquerque that are Navajo that only get time every so often to go home and visit and keeping up with what's going on back home. So as far as the churches, I don't know any any actual hard data. I've been to different churches on the reservation. My parents attend Tohatchie Christian Reformed Church, and they have a pretty good-sized congregation. And then Pastor Jerome out in Nashchiti has a smaller congregation. So most congregations tend to be family or mostly people that go to one church are usually all connected or related somehow or part of the same family. So the, the onus of teaching people about the Bible or even sharing the gospel with other people it tends to fall on family members who make up most of these churches on the reservation. I know the Christian Re- Reformed Church has a, a huge presence on a lot of the communities, but I mean, there's also, I've been at home, you know, we've had missionaries come from the Baptist Church, also from the Mormon Church, which has been, I think, steadily growing on the reservation also. And is it... I guess, can you give me a sense of how common Christianity is among Navajo? I know your your wife is Zuni. I know that's one of the least Christian Native American groups. Where does Navajo kind of, is it most people are or aren't? Is it unusual to, for there to be Navajo believers or, or not so much? From going to school, being exposed to kind of the, the Western schooling system, as well as vacation Bible schools, they come around the reservation every year. And uh, I was actually home when that happened. So this guy was driving down the, the road honking his horn and he asked me if I wanted to, if I would let him take my children away 15 miles to Tohatchie to, to do VBS, which I didn't feel comfortable with. So so I think because of things like VBS, as well as missionaries that come to the reservation, there's a huge influx of the gospel going out. Most Navajo people would know what the gospel is. They've obviously heard of Jesus. I would say 100% of Navajo people know who Jesus is and probably know kind of the some of the Bible story or even what Christianity. Christianity is, but the return on actually becoming followers of Jesus, I would say, is pretty low. I was reading up for this podcast, and I came across this quote that Navajo are, quote, the, the most missionary to people in the world. I was like, oh, that's quite, a, that's quite a claim. And I went to go source that claim. It turned out to be from a Christianity Today article. So I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> there you go. I don't, I, I, there was a report from a, from a conference many, many years ago. So I, I thought, well, that may, that may be true, or it may just be someone speaking at a conference, but uh, was kind of an interesting to to hear that that line. I mean, I know it's been a, a very long and fairly painful history with missions and the Navajo. How front of mind is that as people engage with Christianity in the nation and, and as you do some of your campus ministry work? That history is learned through the home, through stories. Uh, so a lot of the, the history we learn at home is things that aren't taught necessarily in textbooks, a lot of the stories, especially from the boarding school era, which was very notorious in treating Native people as subhuman. That's one of the the reasons when you talk to people who went through the boarding school system, they can tell you exactly what happened. Uh, A good friend of mine, her name is Susie Silversmith. She lives in Denver now, and she tells a story of how she's been baptized into different religions and Christian churches during her stint at boarding school. And she calls herself a boarding school survivor, not necessarily a boarding school graduate. And so, yeah, those those stories are still lingering and people still feel those. So I think then there's a, that resistance to even listen to what Christianity has to offer or even what Jesus offers as a source of renewal and 
you know, being spirit filled. So I think that becomes more of a barrier than than a way to to share the gospel or even let them know of who Jesus is. So I guess some of the good things that have been happening though is when I interact with since we do campus ministry, I interact with younger people a lot. But the the young Navajo people who are becoming Christian or followers of Jesus, they're starting to study scripture through their own their own native lens. It's exciting to see how they're interpreting things like theology, leadership, missions, and even church structure by themselves and not necessarily paternalistically from outsiders who teach them what to believe and how to believe. And so I'm not sure either of the numbers of young Native Christians or young Native Navajo Christians that are doing that, but the ones I come across are all interested in learning more and being able to teach their own people kind of a more indigenous gospel that might be even more able to cross those bridges that have been built by things like boarding school or even our own history of the long walk and and boarding schools especially which boarding schools were they were government run yet they were run in collusion with christian churches and missionaries and nuns and pastors well donnie i wanted to just pause for a second since you are researching millennial and gen z probably i guess gen z navajo and you had mentioned that they're trying to do their own thinking around some of this type of stuff and not just automatically assume some of the claims that they have grown up with or have been imported from the outside world. Maybe you could share with us two or three areas where they're really, I don't know, pioneering some new thoughts about stuff. I'm not very articulate because I just want to kind of know more in general. But maybe you can talk about the areas where they've shown great leadership and bless the church in that way. Definitely in our in our culture, we definitely look to the elders. And so one of our own elders, he's not Navajo, but his name is Terry Wildman. He's actually been translating the New Testament into what's called the First Nations version of the Bible. And so in his translation, he'll take names of people and what they used to mean in the Hebrew, or just to change a name to make it more applicable to a native informed audience. So he'll call Jesus creator who saves throughout text. He'll write the uh, stories in a way that just kind of makes more sense for, for native people. And I've seen especially younger Native people look to that translation when they're reading or even when they're trying to teach something about the Bible to their students or to their friends. So they're willing to take, you know, what an elder has created to be able to use in in their own ministry. Another area I can see that happening, especially with the younger people, is in music. I've seen, you know, different groups come up with different songs or writing their own songs about and to Jesus, using even things like the drum, using their own language to be able to sing worship to God. And they're not afraid of being told they can't do that, because that's what missionaries did to a lot of the first Native Americans and Navajo people who accepted Jesus as their Savior, was that they couldn't use their language, they couldn't bring in their drums, they couldn't use the type of songs they sing for, for worship to Jesus. But I think the younger generation is more willing to stand against that and bring those things into the church as well as into their teachings to friends and, and within their ministry. Is there pushback? I mean, is there is there still tension between drums and, and I guess powwow type? I mean, I know there's lots of different native native musics, but I know powwow in some circles has been controversial in some. Is that felt more in some nations than others? I feel like it's becoming more pronounced. People are willing because back then, like the older generation, you would I heard stories of them, you know, going out into the forest to to sing certain songs with their drums that are, you know, Christian themed and to Jesus, but they wouldn't bring that into the church or even let people know that they're doing that. But if, after reading 
books like Richard Twist's seminal book, One Church, Many Tribes, you know, he goes through the whole history of why Native music has been condemned. He joked about how he would bring a drum into a church and he would put the sticker Yamaha on there so that no one would have a problem with that. So somehow the sticker makes it holy and usable and worship to Jesus. But from his work, if you read that, I think a lot of people have realized that they can worship Jesus in their own unique way, their language or with drums or without, or even how they dance in powwows and, and they know who they're dancing for. So it becomes their own expressive way of doing worship. And as I talked to Pastor Jerome, he, he would say one of the challenges of his church and the church in general on the Naval Reservation is lack of youth involvement, not willing to spend time with the younger generation. And he was even told during a church plant a long time ago in Cayenta that he shouldn't spend time with the young people because they don't give much in tithing. So just kind of this strange view of young people. And, and that's the reason why he thinks it's not growing it's because people aren't investing time in young people. And unfortunately, Jerome is up there in age. He's an elder. So he tries to call on people like me who are not too much younger, but younger than him to be able to reach out to the next generation who are more than willing to, to learn and to follow but if they're presented with only a certain way to do things, I think they'll turn their back. Because the next generation, millennial, are obviously very questioning things that are happening now. Why do they have to follow certain rules, certain ways of doing things? And so I think that's kind of crept into the native mindset that they're questioning why they can't use drums, why they can't sing in their own languages. And I can see them trying hard engaging with their own communities, trying to learn the language, learning songs that are indigenous to their people, and turning around using that for their own worship to God. And so one of the conferences I help lead with, InterVarsity and Nations, it's a partnership between two ministries. We put on a conference called Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread? And just to get the, the young people involved. And so we, we create a space where they're they can be who they are. It's obviously full of laughter and a lot of good food and fry bread. There's always debates about who makes the best fry bread. But I just do that to cause a stir. And it's usually funny for the young, younger people to talk about and debate. But really, we provide a space for them to be able to share songs, to share their stories, to share the troubles they've come from. So I feel like it's a very healing time for a lot of the young people who are usually not even cognizant of being able to use drums to worship God or even being able to sing songs that, are, that sound indigenous. But you know, are reserved for worshiping Jesus. I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about that. Tell me, I was really struck by your own story that I was reading about online about how important that enculturation was in your own journey, especially regarding the parable of the prodigal son. Can you, would you mind telling that story for our listeners, just in, in terms of how important that, that recasting was for you? So Mark Charles talks a lot about, or he uses the story of the prodigal son and how, and he reframes it a little bit too. So this kind of goes in line with what Terry Wildman's doing with the First Nations translation. So making the gospel a little more applicable and understandable to a, an indigenous audience. So in the prodigal son, you know, instead of the father, he uses a grandmother because the grandmother is the matriarch of the family. Like it, what, what grandma says goes, like you never go against <laughs> what grandma says. She says, do this, you do it right away. And the story, he changes the father God from a man to, to the grandmother. In the story, he, he changes how the father gives the inheritance, or the grandmother gives the inheritance to the youngest son. So she buys him a brand new Dodge truck. She decks him out in turquoise, which is very important in Navajo culture, or the older man looks on with envy and, and disgust. And so the, the young man that leaves, the prodigal, the, what, who becomes a prodigal son, he leaves 
basically not his family. He's leaving his own culture, his own people, as it says in the in the scriptures. And eventually, when the famine comes, he he comes back. He loses everything, and he comes back to the grandmother asking for forgiveness. In which you know the grandmother obviously will forgive and bring him back because he's come home to his culture, to his ways of living. You know, which leaves the the older son indignant, and we're not sure what happens to him. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step, and you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more with just one O ct.com slash will and for a limited time you can get 10% off that's morect.com slash will one thing that's that i'm just unfamiliar with is so help me help me think through this just as an anglo guy with who's trying his best to, to know i see things like this new translation that ivp is is about to publish it's super interesting i love it i have read a number of books on native american faith I guess I'm wondering about the relationship between some of these approaches that seem kind of like that are broad across a whole lot of Native American groups and kind of enculturate Christianity within a broad Native American Christianity and then specific nation enculturation. Because I know that uh, Navajo cosmology, very different than Sioux cosmology or even Hopi cosmology. As you work with Native youth from a variety of backgrounds, how much, as you're talking about enculturation, is there an enculturation that is specific to a, say, Navajo background? And how much of it is, a, is kind of a broader Native American background? So I, I probably wouldn't frame it around enculturation, probably more of a realization of how we can study and interpret scripture, but also knowing we have our own, like you said, cosmology, as well as our own creation story. In many ways, our creation story is like the Hebrew Bible, where we refer to it to be able to learn how to live well in the world. 
with self, with others, with creation, with all the animals and all the birds, you know, and, and that concept of balance and harmony is huge in the Navajo culture specific. And so I think that's the realization is being able to look to those teachings that are good, essentially, as well as even looking at the Bible. So it's not, I don't know, I don't see it as syncretist kind of combining the two, but being able to look to spaces or places or stories, narratives that give good teaching on how to live in a good way. In, in this world, and even taking things like how we interact with Mother Nature, being able to see it as part of our relative, because we do get our everything from the earth, you know, we get food, we get shelter, we get everything we have. So we refer to it as a mother, not as an idol, something to be worshipped. Because even in, you know, in Genesis, the creation story from the Hebrews is man was created from the mud from the ground. <laughs> so we literally come from the earth. When I when we see it like that, it just makes sense in our indigenous eyes. And then we also have access to the Holy Spirit to tell us, you know, what teachings are good, which teachings may not be ideal for how to live in a good way or even to be more Christ-like. And I can't really speak for other tribes. I, can, I don't even speak for my own tribe. <laughs> I can't speak for them. I'm only one tiny speck in all the, the people that live on the reservation and trying to give as much voice to them as I can by talking to people like Mark Charles and Elmer Yazi and Jerome Sandoval. So yeah, I can only speak for, from my little tiny speck and I can't, I won't even try to speak for other, other tribes that are engaging in the same conversation. Donnie, we had kind of talked about some of the just challenges with regards to socioeconomic status and resources and so forth at the top of the show. But I'm wondering if you can just enumerate a little bit more about what the situation looks like on the reservation. What is exactly, I don't know, catalyzing or facilitating this rapid spread of COVID-19? I mean, the Navajo Nation has been affected a lot more than other places, even places with a lot more people. So per capita, Navajo people have been exposed to COVID a lot more. So some of the reasons, I think, for some of the high numbers is just just realizing the backdrop of Navajo people, Navajo culture, that Navajo people have large families. And when I say families, I'm not referring just to the nuclear family, like mom, dad, brother, and sister, but they care for and are responsible for a large extended families. And that's why we have a clan system. So when I normally, when I introduce myself, I should introduce my clan so I can so people will know who they are related to and then so on the reservation you know when during this pandemic one of the biggest challenges has been to keep people from visiting their extended families and people who are within their clans and kinsmen that has been very difficult because they do feel responsible for them like my brother who lives on the reservation constantly is checking up on my parents and even his siblings like me because there's a there's an obligation that's just built into our culture to care for all family members and not just your own family in your household. President Nez definitely does have a difficult job in curtailing the virus among people who feel safest when they're with their family. Because in moments of crisis like this, people want to be near their family. They want to be near grandma and grandpa or your aunt or your uncles or even your cousins. So that's been one of the, I think, one of the reasons it's led to the higher numbers on the reservation. Because Navajo people live life through relationships and they're even willing to risk catching a deadly disease in order to help another family member. Some of the other reasons, as I was talking to Elmer Yazi, he said many families still lack running water and electricity. You know, when we hear the public service announcement on TV or on social media, you know, the the big thing is to wash your hands. But how can Navajo people do that when they don't have access to running water? And so this pandemic in many ways is just uncovering the systemic issues that have plagued Navajo people for the last 160 years. So the issues of not having enough grocery stores, not having clean water, lack of infrastructure all stem from 
mostly from their removal from their traditional territory in 1864. The subsequent return in 1868 to a smaller reservation where most of their land has had been sold off to outsiders and the continued broken promises from the government. As I was talking to Elmer, he also said his nephew works with the electric company. And I think within the last year, he said that they brought electricity to 15,000 people on the reservation. And his nephew was just astounded by how many people still don't have electricity on the reservation, which sounds you know, to many people impossible because we live in the greatest nation in the world or even in history, yet Navajo people still have to survive without running water or electricity. And so when the pandemic has started and people here are hearing about the Navajo Nation, you know, the, I guess the normal thing to do is to give charity. So in times of crisis, you know, non-Navajo people who are inside and outside the church often will just give charity, you know, food, clothes, bottled water. But in the long run, charity won't fix, you know, the oppressive forces that are put on Navajo people removed from their territories. People donate water without asking, why don't Navajo people have water to begin with? Well, that's because Navajo people don't have rights to the water that sits under their own land. And so instead, the millions of water and, and the aquifers on the reservation are pumped out and transferred to desert cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas. I know there's probably a huge legal rabbit trail that we could go on right now, but I do think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand some of the politics behind the reservation. And that would even help me as I enter into this conversation, Donnie. But we mentioned at the top of the show, these reservations are on land that is in Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. But do they fall under state jurisdiction or are they, does the federal government, are they the ones that are in, they have to vet everything with and through? Yeah, that is the question. <laughs> so yeah, it, it depends a lot of times. So the Navajo Nation has tried to push through a constitution since they're coming back from Fort Sumner from their removal, but it's usually not ratified by the federal government. Reservations or nations like the Navajo Reservation or Navajo Nation as well as other nations are considered domestic dependent nations where they need to rely on the protection of the United States from other nations. Uh, and what makes us a nation is the ability to enter treaties, which that was taken away a long time ago by the United States government. And so things like crime that happen on the reservation, it kind of depends on who commits the crime. So like on the Navajo Reservation, Navajo police can't arrest a non-native. So they can't arrest white people on the reservation because they don't have jurisdiction over them. But they can't arrest people who are Navajo. And so they, they try, they have their own court systems and their own policing, but it depends on the crime if they can investigate or even, even pursue charges against other people. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very long, com tangential conversation we could go on for what sovereignty even means today, or if it, if it is even sovereignty, because we can make decisions, but then it could be vetoed by the federal government. So a good example is CARES Act that just was passed a few months ago, a couple billion dollars set aside for Native tribes to be able to use in response to COVID-19. But that money took a long time to finally push through Congress and get to the into the hands of Native tribes. And so the Navajo Nation is sitting on that money now because there's only a certain way they can spend the CARES Act money. And they have to all have the agreement of how to spend it for the nation. So not much has happened from that because other tribes like in Alaska get money. They're actually corporations set up as a corporation in Alaska. So because of that, the Navajo Nation has actually sued those corporations for getting money. And so I think it's just kind of this scheme by the government to force uh, tribes to engage in litigation over things like money, resources. Well, I know it's endlessly complicated. I had just listened to a podcast that was talking about challenges of solving crimes on reservations because of just the bureaucratic headaches about that. So that's probably its own podcast altogether. I, I want to kind of shift back to the church, though. And one, 
<laughs> other, or I guess one tangential question, which is we had mentioned that we had done this interview with Carol at the beginning and her ministry that she leads as part of the Christian Reformed Church, which here in the Midwest we think of as being really associated with Dutch heritage. But from what I understand, a number of Navajo Christian leaders are also connected to this tradition. So what is the relationship between the CRC and the Navajo Nation? That relationship probably began over 100 years ago when the Dutch Christian Reformed people came down from Michigan to establish uh, Rehoboth. That was a boarding school in its earliest day. I don't remember the date exactly, like 1908. It was established, but mostly by Dutch that came down to minister to mostly Navajo, but I think they also ministered to the Zuni Pueblo. And that's actually where I graduated from high school a long time ago and is where I met my wife-to-be, Renee. We both went to school there and graduated a while back. So I think that relationship is where it kind of began. So at Rehoboth, there's about half now Native people that go, half Native students and half white that all attend. So there's this cross-pollination of different cultures that learn from one another. And then from there, I think the mission that was set up started opening churches across the Navajo Reservation, churches like where my parents still attend to this day in Tohatchie and has grown all the way up to Nashchiri. Beyond that, I'm not too sure where the other churches are located, but now they've created their own organization for Navajo pastors to come together and even train other Navajo pastors to be able to, to teach and preach in those churches. What would you say are the church's biggest challenges overall with, re- with regards to discipleship, with regards to being able to equip future leaders? I already touched on one already with Pastor Jerome. He said there's just a lack of engagement with young people. And I think when you don't engage with them once they leave, it's hard for them to come back to that and engage with Jerome Sandoval. He said it's interesting on the Navajo Reservation because Navajo congregations usually desire their pastors to be white and not Navajo. And some of the reasons he gave was because they believe Navajo pastors aren't qualified, that they have a lack of perceived qualification because they didn't attend a certain college like Calvin College, which most you know CRC pastors come out of. And another reason he said was because Navajos don't possess, they believe Navajo pastors don't possess the ministering spirit that white missionaries possess. Part of his job has been trying to tell his people that the same spirit that you know white missionaries, white ministers rely on is available to everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Navajo congregations don't have a whole lot of confidence in homegrown ministers and pastors. And so this leads to even more lack of trust for Navajo ministers, as well as for young people who don't want to engage in that kind of, I guess, politics of not being trusted. Even if they go off the reservation to learn and come back, they probably won't be listened to. Donnie, just wanted to end our conversation with one last question, which is, you know, what do you think that the American church at large could learn from the Navajo church? Oh, Defer to my elders, <laughs> Elmer and Pastor Jerome. Yeah, when I asked him this question, Elmer said, uh, when you present the gospel, there should be no time limit. He loves the idea of indigenous time concept, that we live in a different time zone than the world, that there's still a focus to get the job done, you know, whatever that may be, ministering or reaching out to the community, but it's not done in a frenzy. Elmer said, in the white churches, there's always an anxiousness to accomplish things, things like vacation Bible schools that go to the Navajo Reservation for one week. They go there with their time perception and believe they'll make a difference in a few moments, but in reality, it takes years to even 
build trust with Navajo people to be able to teach them the gospel because there's already a barrier from our history, from boarding schools, and just from negative interactions with the church. Another thing the larger church can learn from Navajo people, according to Pastor Jerome Sandoval, is that we know how to live by the Spirit. We know what living by the Spirit means, that we know the Spirit of the Creator by how we live in and with creation that surrounds us. He goes on to say, we also know the spiritual world is real because of the negative spiritual side of living on the reservation. Worship of the Creator has always been part of the Navajo culture. Even simple things like sitting in a circle and seeing everyone's face to witness their joy or feel their pain. And it's only then that we can, when we see their face, see their joy, their emotions, their anger, their grief, their sadness, then we can know how to pray for them. And so worship, according to Jerome, is that worship needs to be more inclusive. Thank you, Donnie, for sharing all of this information with us. I am Really looking forward to hearing what our listeners have to say about the stuff that you shared with us. And I just appreciate all the complexity that you brought to all of this. So thank you. For people who have feedback, send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also at CT Podcasts. And now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Are you ready to go, Ted? I am ready to go. This was a lovely holiday weekend. It was just wonderful to like be on a celebration weekend. So on Friday, I took the day off. We talked about Juneteenth and kind of celebrated that. On Saturday, I have a strong connection to my family in Sweden. And so we did a Swedish midsummer party here at my house, just with my small family. And I made a kind of traditional Swedish smorgasbord there. And then Sunday was Father's Day and we just partied again. And so we, we had a lot of board games and a lot of just fun family time. And so we all do feel a little cooped up, all four of us here, but boy, just kind of having a a three-day party kind of <laughs> helped a lot over here. So we celebrating caused us a lot of joy. How about you, Morgan? And you're at Ted Olson. I oh yeah, I always forget that thing. You know, if they haven't followed me by now, no. What's the matter with them? Yeah, right. (laughs) At Ted Olson. Well, I would say my precious moment is kind of odd juxtaposition, or a little bit more on the bittersweet end. So I think I told you a couple weeks ago that I had a really amazing weekend in the sense that I was essentially outside all weekend, (laughs) which to me is almost the perfect weekend. But as most people who listen to this podcast know, I live in Chicago and we had one of the worst weekends ever (laughs) with regards to violence. There are 104 people shot over the weekend. And even more demoralizing with all of that was the number of kids that were shot. Oh, man. So it's just kind of like holding that intention at the same time kind of feels sobering, you know, because I really enjoyed my weekend and I was outside a lot too. I do try to stay off social media as much as I can over the weekend. So I didn't really recognize that everything that was happening until I got on, you know, my computer on late Sunday night or Monday morning and was like, whoa, there were two basically the tale of two weekends, which is not uncommon at all yeah. in Chicago. But or the tale of the tale of the same weekend, you know, like you know, you, <laughs> you can be, you know, having a lovely time and a few walks over something horrible is happening. Yeah. Well there was actually I, I was thinking about it. I left my friend's house, I wanna say, at eleven thirty on Saturday night and I was reading through some of the crime reports and like the intersection where they live, there was a shooting like twenty minutes after that. So 
<laughs> it's just interesting how all of that happens. There, yeah, there was just like so much going on at the same time. So anyway, just thinking through all of that and reflecting and hopefully can do a little bit more than just thinking and reflecting. Yeah. Praying. Praying too. Yeah. And trying to to sit with all of the stuff that's happening in the city right now because it's obviously left a lot of people demoralized. I will say I just needed a soapbox to say this. Yes, fireworks have been going off in my neighborhood since May. Also, all these fireworks conspiracy theories are truly amazing and make me want to do <laughs> a show just on fireworks conspiracy theories because they're out of control. Okay, so for the benefit of our listeners or co-hosts that may not know some of those conspiracy theories, what was what's one of the conspiracy theories? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the government that's planting these fireworks and giving people access to state-of-the-art fireworks. In order, yeah. what's the what's the what's the end game in this conspiracy theory? I mean, to provoke unrest through like uh, not letting people sleep. Uh, very interesting. And that it just is so abnormal that these would be like this extraordinary of fireworks that would just be in the hands of teenagers, essentially. And how did that happen? Well, so, these these conspiracy theories are easy, easier to believe on very little sleep, I think. So, <laughs> yes. All right, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at m e p a y n l. Donnie, do you want to go ahead? I guess uh, what's brought me joy definitely is have being home and not having to travel. For the last few years, we've done quite a bit of traveling, extensive travel for our work and to attend meetings. And I feel like. I've gotten soul rest being home and not having to think about traveling or having to leave my family by themselves while I'm away. So that's actually, I think that's brought a lot of a lot of soul rest. I've, I, that's brought me also a lot of joy. Donnie, where can people find you on social media or where can they find your newsletter? I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just type in my name, Donnie Begay. And then my wife and I host a website together called thetalkingcircle.com. And you can hear a lot about our ministry as well as hear my wife. She's given several talks to different places, and you can hear more about her because she's actually the wise one of the family. So you might want to head over there. It's a great website. I strongly encourage folks to go see it. Check it out. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Bunya Shola. Music is done by Sweeps. Thank you everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Again, we truly appreciate all the nice things that you say about the podcast there and all the feedback that you give us. So if you have specific episode feedback, which we hope you do, please send it to us. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com and we do really appreciate hearing from listeners about what you have to say. We will see you all next week. Bye.